The enhanced editions of George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones books are available exclusively on iBooks, including the just-released A Storm of Swords Enhanced Edition. It contains interactive character maps, hundreds of author notes, beautiful illustrations, a sigil guide, and much more. All these extras bring this thrilling adventure to life and help you stay on top of the epic storylines. Get A Storm of Swords Enhanced Edition exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash Game of Thrones. Not available in all countries. I think we should start with Hannah explaining to us why this is her favorite Tyrion chapter of all time. Oh, yeah. I forgot that I said that. Yes, Hannah. Please <laughs> enlighten us for the next 45 minutes. I'll talk about this chapter for 45 minutes. No problem. Okay. Well, Zach, you heard that, right? <laughs> I heard so it. Sit back and relax. We're on break the for Hannah the next show. 45. Hey, thanks for joining us, everyone. These two chapters, uh, I, I, we haven't talked about it yet. We just recorded a squad cast, but we didn't talk about it. Now that we're here, oh man, pairing Jamie and Tyrion together at a time like this, man, it was so fun. I like yeah. the little uh, gif that you posted of them embracing each other. I felt like it was necessary, you know? Like they're coming together in the read-through. These are the, the best parts of A Feast with Dragons. Not only the, the added perspective of, of the story chronologically moving forward together, but when we get Jamie and Tyrion beside each other and they're they're thinking about each other and it's juxtaposed directly rather than being split by two books and then we get to you know have them as a duo on the show right now it was so fun yeah i would say i know that we say this all the time but it's just been so much fun to do this read through just like you're saying you get all of they're they're thinking about each other in both their respective chapters and they're back to back and so i'm always so surprised that this is the way things are turning out, even though we did it that way on purpose. You know what I mean? Like, But I'm always happily surprised that things, that this read-through makes us so much fun and so interesting. So last week I mentioned that I love this chapter so much and I was just confirmed rereading through that today. And I think that the reason, well, there's lots of reasons why I love it, but I, this is one of those chapters that just stuck with me from beginning to end the first time I read this book this whole series really is just one of those chapters that when I think about A Song of Ice and Fire, I think about this chapter and I don't really know particularly why. I mean, it's beautifully written and I think that we got a lot of cool imagery and of course what happens at the end yes. is really exciting. Um, and there's a ton of things that are being revealed. So, I mean, I guess it's jam-packed and that's why I would love it. But this is just one of those chapters that when I think about the series, this is the chapter that I kind of bring to memory and so I'm excited to kind of get into mm. some of the details. It's not only cool because Jamie and Tyrion are referencing each other, but also because what they're doing in each of these chapters, uh, while one's more diplomatic and one is is definitely measurably more terror-filled and dangerous, a funeral procession and coming face-to-face -face with the stone men instead of this deep, dark mist uh, kind of just it plays with each other in an interesting way. And, and it forces both of them, whether it's the the high intensity of his conversation with two of his family members, because that's a big deal. How 
deep and serious those talks were because of the nature of how important those people are not only to each other, but to the kingdom. So when we see decisions of that size getting made or ideas moving forward or someone saying specifically that the way you thought something should go shouldn't go that way, but the implications are for the entire seven kingdoms, you know, to me, it's it's. Not exa- it's not what Tyrion is going through himself, but those decisions like running after the stone man and tackling him, those decisions mean a lot moving forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. they have larger implications, especially considering who he's knocking out of the way, whose legs he's kicking out from underneath him so that he can go face to face with one of the stone men. And I did like the the connections between the chapters. Whoever planned this did a great job, by the way, because. <laughs> There's clearly the references to Tywin from Tyrion's chapter, even talking about how in in the Jamie chapter he's he's present even though he's deceased. Um and then also the the Targaryen ties, right? Uh mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of uh mentions of Aerys Targaryen in the Jamie chapter. There's there's a little bit of a, a flashback and a comparison uh, in, uh, between that was so cool. Cersei and, and Aerys, but then also to have mentions of the Targaryens in the Tyrion chapters, he starts to unravel some of the mystery surrounding Griff and young Griff. And so, despite the fact that these chapters are in two completely different books, they're they're very much connected. That's what I like so much about this read through is that one of the issues that I've had with the books being split the way that they were is that I think that well issue and strength. I think that George R. R. Martin relies a lot on the fact that we're supposed to remember a lot. I think that he puts a lot on us as readers to pick up small clues throughout the series and then kind of tie them all together with this reveal of Griff and young Griff with talks of Targaryens and all this kind of thing. If you're not paying attention, those are things that you can easily glide over. And so I think that one of the strengths of doing the the read through in the way that we're doing is that we're able to pick up one because we're going slowly, but two, we're able to pick up on some of these things that we may not have remembered if we had like the first couple of times I read through blaze through it for plot, you know? And so I think that that adds to a lot. It helps us to remember these little details that we would have skimmed over fairly easily beforehand. Totally. And as a reader of High Fantasy, there are other books like the the Stephen King's Dark Tower series that utilize a lot of uh, what he does is he trusts the reader to, you know, look at a sentence from the third chapter of the first book that will tie it thematically to a a huge reveal later. And and maybe on another read through, you get extra uh, sort of like ambient enjoyment as you're reading because you're like, oh, this little thing, if I only knew then for the first time, how cool that would have been. I feel like you get that a lot in feast and in dance because not only has he, has he been doing that for the whole series, but he's, he's, he's doing it directly chronologically between two books and we only have a single set of characters per book. So it's like cranking that, that feeling of connection and, and the, the detail rich environment that we as, as nerdy readers like so much, it's like cranking it up to 11. And, and I think there's much more enjoyment, even on the second read through or whatever number it is for people who are doing it along with us, because the, the level of detail that I, I know I didn't pay attention to, when I went through and read both of these books for the first time, and and even you know, this journey that Tyrion is on as he's going through, uh, you know these th- th- this 
particular part of, of Essos and and the the rich history that we learn about um, that he is being exposed to that we're seeing through his eyes. You know, when I was going through the first time. I wasn't paying a, a attention to the palaces and the bridges. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it was right. cool scenery, but I was most concerned about the end of the chapter because the end of this chapter is 100% a flip forward <laughs> I, moment. I knew you would hate it. I read <laughs> yeah. it and I thought that Micah hates the end of this chapter. It, you know, it, yeah, but who, I mean, we all flipped to see if there was a Tyrion chapter after this, right? I, I, I couldn't. I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, I think you, you at least had a little bit of foresight with the show, but- yeah. For for a first time reader, it's and and just given I, because of the the conversation that we've all had about Tyrion in particular over the course of the last few episodes, when we've had other chapters of his, this is the fifth Tyrion chapter. We talked about his changing character and and just how he seems to have a little bit more of an edge of evil to him than we've seen in the past, and so. It would almost be a fitting end, given that you know he he turns a little bit back to the Tyrion that we all knew and loved when he steps in to defend Young Griff, and then all of a sudden, you know he's undone at the end. But he seems okay with it. You know he seems to accept death in the end of this chapter, which is much different, I think, than you know the, the Tyrion that was being put on trial earlier on in the series and, right. and and was facing death for you know having killed Joffrey which he obviously didn't do so it, just to see how his character it's not even developed but has just changed so much and he's in a he, completely different part of the world it was it was interesting to get to that point and wonder if in fact Tyrion was still alive or this was it like he all the plans that were put together by Varys, by Illyrio, as it related to Tyrion, now mean nothing. What do you think it would have felt like if this was, you know, he, Tyrion Lannister has gotten this far, he's been so important to us. Like, what what would what would have happened if he would have died here? Oh, no. The, I mean, I can't see that. It's too much. Yeah. P- people love him way too much. George loves him way too much. I He's a, he's an endgame type, type of, of character, no question. We see so much. I mean- I know we've talked about it so many times on the show, but think of all the places we've been with Tyrion. I mean, we've yeah. seen most of this world through his eyes. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing undead stone men. Well, he wants to die too much. Like, he's too okay with it. And I think that even if if this was his end, though, these last those last couple of paragraphs of this chapter, when he's got, as he's drowning and as he's going through his head, he's kind of reflecting on how... He's already dead and he died a long time ago back in King's Landing. And he says no man would mourn the thing that he'd become. I think that he too much accepts death in this moment to let him, to let George R. R. Martin get him, get off that easy almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's too, too perfect and too, well, not too perfect and too clean of a death, but he, it ends in a, in this beautiful way, which I feel like would be almost too easy for somebody like Tyrion. Man, it would have been such a, a an insane latter book Ned Stark moment, though. Just right. man, man. I mean, I'm glad that's not the case. And like we've said before, you know, these chapters in A Dance with Dragons, uh, Tyrion's journey, woe to the show watcher only, not experiencing the real implications that Tyrion has felt and gone through. Uh, after what he's done in King's Landing, not only to Tywin, to Shay, uh, the things that he's been blamed for. And now in this chapter, more reflection on how 
the things that he said to Jamie uh, will affect him. And then also uh, the, the truth of the things that Jamie told him about Taisha affecting him currently. Yeah, I, I'm continually impressed by, not impressed, but how, how often he draws back to this crucial moment in the series of him killing his father. And there's a line where he talks about, he describes the feeling of his situation as being back watching his father die. Like he, he, he going through down this river with these stone men surrounding him calls up those feelings that he felt again, um, back in King's Landing. And I think it's so interesting how much those things continue to drive his decisions and drive his feelings. And, um, we, uh, we hear him, Griff is yelling at him or something. I can't really remember. And it reminds Tyrion of his dad and all these moments like this, that, everything kind of ties back to this decision that he made to kill his father and kind of go back a little bit before we were talking about with both these chapters tying together, how much this one decision that Tyrion made has just completely changed the entire trajectory of the story. And I think that these two chapters really call to light that. And the journey itself, the sorrows, the fog, the stakes in their party are obviously so high that this kind of jaunt is necessary and we can assume from the things that Tyrion has been saying also because we know about Tyrion that he's been putting the clues together to the level of their journey exactly uh, for a long time and he's had all these ideas about where and what they're doing for a long time but I kind of saw it as like when they were cro- when they were crossing past the palace of, of love but now for like a thousand years it's been considered the palace of sorrow we, we, we got that wonderful sense of what it was like to be here when this part of the world was thriving, when those docks and those archways and that bridge, they were all being used by real people. But as they drove further and crossed beneath the bridge, especially when they rounded again for some reason, whether it's magic or, or a trick of the river or maybe they were completely wrong. I mean, they, George doesn't say but we can only assume because stonemen exist, there's a possibility that anything can happen when they come upon the bridge again and then are eventually attacked. I just felt like going off of what you said, Hannah, him coming to terms and getting a grip on all of these things. I felt I felt like the journey through the sorrows was sort of a figurative representation of Tyrion going into those recesses of his mind. And the attack was the danger that shook him to decision-making. And after this point, just like he in the preview with Tywin, that one decision shifted and changed everything after that. I feel like after this point, this one decision with how he decides to defend young Griff or not will be another pivotal moment for him moving forward. And I just really liked the way that it was set up. I felt like the whole reason they were there and the whole reason it was so eerie wasn't only because geographically speaking they were traveling there i just felt like it was figurative right like surrounding Tyrion's mind and his journey it's it was so well done mm-hmm. yeah i absolutely agree you mentioned the pal- palace of love i really really liked what Tyrion thinks about those scenes and kind of want to compare that a little bit to this scenery that we're getting as we float isn't the right word but as we float Pole. down this we river float like a rubber duck <laughs> Yeah, that sounds too uh, nice for what's <laughs> yeah. happening. Yeah, like, yeah, it's not some like nice little river float. But I just thought that the way this chapter was written was so incredibly beautiful. And I'm kind of making two points. But the first one is I really have been noticing over the last couple of chapters how George R. R. Martin has been describing places as people 
And I really like that a lot. And I, the chapter opens with that. Um, they move through the fog like a blind man groping his way down an unfamiliar hill. And then there's another point in the chapter where they he, he mentions the same kind of thing, which I think really sets up how much there i think groping his way down an unfamiliar hill completely puts us in this position where there's so much fog and there's vines and moss and they can't really see anything that's happening which i think is really cool and so when they come up to this palace i really really like what Tyrion says it kind of like comes to life in his mind to him he thought let's see i'm gonna read a little bit if that's okay please um, You're supposed to talk for 45 minutes. Zach and I have done more than our fair share. We're doing our best. Okay. It's, it's just me from now on. The ruin was sad enough, but knowing what it had been made it even sadder. There was laughter here once, Tyrion thought. There were gardens bright with flowers and fountains sparkling golden in the sun. These steps once rang to the sound of lovers' footsteps, and beneath that broken dome, marriages beyond count were sealed with a kiss. Um, and then he he starts to think about Taisha and, and Jamie and, and all these things that we've talked to or touched on briefly. But I really love the juxtaposition between this, what I'm picturing, this gray, cold, damp, slow move down this river that's playing tricks on them with this glittering, magical place that this once was. And then I like that we kind of get a chance to relive what it could have been before it became the Palace of Sorrow. Mm-hmm. Like Tywin falling, like this city and landscape falling, like the the kingdom of the Targaryens of Valyria uh, falling, the world continues to move on. And I wonder if there's part of him that with all this tie back to his own family and his own experiences, does he see a, a bit of King's Landing? Does he see a bit of the places that he's been to in Westeros? in these ruins is it is it as much a look to the past as it is a look to the future with all the devastation and destruction that he's traveling through in these chapters i think so i mean it'd be hard not to i think that he's Mm -hmm. self-aware enough to know that you know him he was handed the king for god's sakes at one point you know he, he meant a lot and he grew up in a family that is basically a royal family we learned that tywin was made hand of the king at age 21 and that's his dad and he's not you know the first but I'm, I'm just saying Tyrion's self-aware he knows you know like he he understands how far reaching the things that he and his family can do uh how, affects the lives of millions of people but not only not only the people but the the whole seven kingdoms and maybe even the world you know when you said that that george personified the city if you think about the world in that way as as their metropolises and their groups of people, whether it's in the Dothraki Sea or whether it's in White Harbor in Westeros, you know, sort of come together in the macro as a as an organism. And, and these kingdoms, they live together in harmony, seeing something that used to be so grand that is now a, a hive for dreadful, dangerous, violent demons that want to just murder you. It, it, it's a, a pretty big reminder to someone like Tyrion. Uh, that his you know decision should count and that if he were to die right now it really wouldn't matter as much because the wheel keeps turning mm. right yeah i would say you're saying this means something like that to someone like Tyrion. i think especially to someone like Tyrion. Yeah. i don't know if everybody else can pick up on how savvy and smart he is well griff definitely does because he yells at him earlier in the chapter right which time 
He says, oh, unless yeah. you can cut this fog with your next witticism, keep yeah. it to yourself. <laughs> uh, so I, I think Griff knows that Tyrion is, is quite smart, quite witty. And this may be a little bit far-reaching, but I wondered, given young Griff's supposed identity, given where they're traveling, do you think that that could play into the reason why maybe they were turned around? That it's it's almost like the destruction that, that was caused here was in part due to his family. And yeah. I wonder if sort of the mysticism, the the magic that exists is trying to rebel in a way. Oh man, that would be so cool. Trying yeah, to seek really revenge. Cool. I mean, that's that could be a little bit of a stretch, but let's roll with it. I like right. it. I think I mean <laughs> either way, you know, it happened and he's there and it is important, you know, the possibility of a Targaryen prince still living, not killed in our story being taken care of by none other than John Connington, past Hand of the King, past badass friend to Rhaegar Targaryen, together, traveling with a maester, a septa, you know, duck. We've got, you know, this is there's a full cast of people here that are that are mm-hmm. helping this kid. And apparently, you know, it's an important thing. It's important enough for, for Varys to get involved. It's important enough for Lirio to get involved, someone who personally pays uh, for favors or his ideas to leaders of cities, to leaders of kingdoms. You know what I mean? Like this, this, this is a, uh, this is the all-star, you know, secret journey. And Tyrion Lannister has found a way to become a part of it. And obviously he's important enough to be a part of it. And that's great. At the very end of Jamie's chapter, Jamie's having a conversation in White Sword Tower with Loras Tyrell. And with these two things put together, meaning this Tyrion and Jamie chapter, I feel like the references uh, to Kristen Cole and why he was called the Kingmaker was so interesting because of the nature of what you just said, Micah, with the Targaryen not only being back there, but just being in the position to do something again for a Targaryen to possibly shake things up in the Seven Kingdoms. Again, Kristen Cole being uh, a member of the Kingsguard in the past who rose up to be eventually Lord Commander and convinced the King Viserys' son, Aegon, to claim the rule of Westeros as his father was dying, right? And his daughter, Rhaenyra, was being groomed to be the leader instead. Boy-girl stuff aside, that was the supposed plan. And this guy in the Kingsguard basically put the Dance of the Dragons, this Targaryen-on-Targaryen fight, into motion. I just thought it was interesting because when you put these two chapters together, you know, that's sort of what's happening right now with young Griff and possibly Daenerys later on in the story. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like I was saying earlier, it's so nice that we have, because I think that Jamie goes through a lot of this history. We we get a lot of this, that type of history through his perspective because of who he is and his position. And so it's nice to have those reminders that the, these things are all kind of tied together. And so I think that's a good, I think that's a good point. But so this is a question that I had and I'm still kind of have, but I've teased out a little bit in my mind is about why we should care about who young Griff is and why this should matter this late in the story. And I'm just curious as to what your guys' thoughts are on how you feel about this reveal and how you think it could make a difference, if at all, with the whole end game. I'm interested in also, and this is a separate question and I'll answer yours, Hannah, uh, first, but 
I'm going to start Zach, writing these down. what was your reaction? <laughs> yeah, I know. We need to write all, all these questions down. But <laughs> I, I want to know what your reaction was to, to finding this out and then subsequently your feelings on it, at least up until this point, not being included in the show. Well, we haven't talked about this yet, even amongst ourselves. No, no. And because I, I think the exclusion from the show, Hannah, may help answer the question that you just asked. Because- if David Benioff and Dan Weiss don't think it's important enough to include John Connington <laughs> and, and Young Griff slash Aegon, then clearly, I, I don't know if that means that maybe he's not who he really appears to be, that this is all a ruse that's being put together by Varys and and Illyrio for additional gain. It's hard to, I, I don't want to jump ahead to where these characters eventually end up, but I, I just have a hard time believing that if they were not important enough to end up in the show, that they're going to have any major impact on the outcome of Game of Thrones. Right. Like this guy, Aegon is not going to sit on the Iron Throne because we don't know who he is in the show. I mean, I get nervous making those comparisons because I just, don't like to but i i do think that there's probably some truth to that i feel like game of thrones and song of ice and fire while sharing most of each other's elements stylistically because that's the nature of adapting a book like a song of ice and fire is telling a very different kind of story in a lot of ways it's similar the adaptation does go straight down the board and then obviously it breaks off I mean, this is a pretty damn good example. One, Lady Stoneheart. Yeah. That's that's whatever. But this right here, this is this is the possibility of I mean, for all that we know, an actual Targaryen, real or not, potentially moving into Westeros with men and with cause. With a better claim. With a better claim, fine, but just just at all. And so I know when I think about it, I'm so perplexed as to why they didn't go there in the show. I understand why it, it's it greatly simplifies everything. If we at some point during Game of Thrones stopped stopped adding characters and let the characters that we already have, they're already so great and there's already so many play out the story in their own way, and that be that. But George, to me, he isn't doing that with the Song of Ice and Fire. The conflict that I just talked about with the Dance of the Dragons. I think could possibly happen again while everything else that's happening in A Song of Ice and Fire is going on. I don't think that, that young Griff and John Connington are going to disappear after book five. He not being included in the show, I think, says very boldly that they're telling a different kind of story. And that's fine. And that, it's fun to watch. But this is this is it. You know, this is the high fantasy stuff that I like. It's awesome. And I really wish that the show would go there because it would be even more cool and i think it would make the show even better but i just don't see them uh, doing that clearly the stuff with euron that's coming or the stuff with euron that's been set up in the books at least the stuff from the sample chapter i i, I see all that and i know where it's going and i do cartwheels every night before i go to bed thinking about it because it's so exciting <laughs> <laughs> and then i see the show uh, version of euron and yeah yeah did that answer your question micah no it did and and i think for the purposes of the books, though, when you look at the fact that Tyrion is here, he's interacting with these characters, again, 
despite the direction that the show may be going in, I feel like there's no good reason why George would just write Tyrion into these characters' lives unless they were important. And so that makes me think that Aegon really is a Targaryen and that there will be some sort of conflict. Daenerys has yet to really, with the exception of, of her brother, and and that played itself out in, in the first book, but now that she's really come into her own and she's assumed this power and she's, at least in, in, in the show, let's hope that's moving that way in the books too, headed back to Westeros, she she's now going to have to contend potentially with a Targaryen once she arrives there, which yeah. she may not even know about, learn about, and and until she gets there. And and so I think there's probably this expectation uh, on the part of Varys or or Illyrio that thinks that they would join their forces together and this would be sort of a, a peaceful alliance. Or maybe their intent is for that to be the exact opposite. Me, I don't. When you have characters like Varys, you never know really what it is that they want, what 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 mm-hmm. their endgame vision is, and and so who knows? I mean, there there's so many possibilities here because it's so open ended. We we don't have any sort of clear resolution. Uh, particularly because we haven't seen it in the show. I feel like if if these characters actually had been cast, and this is a great reason uh, you know, as uh, for them not being cast, is that we can sit here and we can talk about it and we don't have anything to really compare it to. Right. I think that you bring up a good question. Is that what are Varys and Illyrio's... Like, I think that we're getting some insight into what their plan is here, but what was their idea with having multiple options i guess and how were they foreseeing all that coming together like you're talking about i think is an interesting question um and then i also think that i think that what i think (laughs) um (laughs) what do you think (laughs) (laughs) tell us i think that what i think is that i think that Aegon's role at least from my perspective where we are now and mikey you kind of alluded to this is that we this is Danny's could be one of Danny's major contenders or not adversaries, but but somebody to go against her claim and then talk to about go against the legitimacy of her claim. I guess you could almost say it, it takes her out of the safe zone. I feel like that she's been in because she's rising to power and she's kind of far removed from what's actually happening at Westeros, at least where we are in the, the story here. And I think that she's kind of been she hasn't had any real opposition, I guess you could say to, to her claim to the throne. And this is something that throws a wrench into that a little bit. And so I think that that's going to force Danny to think about herself and her strategy and how she's going to deal with this. If she ever does end up dealing with it, whether or not we need that in the show, I don't know, but um, obviously we don't. We don't. Yeah. No, I think that that much has been made clear. (laughs) Unless there are more surprises coming in the next two seasons. But yeah, it, it Varys has been a wild card throughout the series. And along with Littlefinger, we don't really know what it is that's going on inside these characters' minds. And I would love to get a point of view chapter from, from either of them. But yes. what, what made me think 
that Aegon could in fact be Aegon is that Varys is somebody who clearly knows the inner workings of the, you know, of, of King's Landing, right? All the different passageways and it's how he got around. He was able to spy. Who's to say if, if he knew what was about to happen that he couldn't have done a quick swap uh, and, and gotten Aegon out to safety. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of other theories and evidence that suggest otherwise that, that this kid is a fake and not real. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen them. I haven't read them in depth, so I don't, I don't know them as well, but I, I think, yeah, in, in this chapter, we're presented with uh, a, a great reveal that I think feels so cool as you, as you said, Zach, to, to readers who have been, you know, kind of plowing through this text for so long to get another Targaryen that's out there is a big reveal. Everyone's a secret Targaryen. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, still maybe it's on. two tar- Targaryens talking to each other. Who knows? Does it matter if he's real or not? At the end of A Dance of Dragons, Daenerys goes through a huge moment of growth, and we haven't seen where that leads her. After everything that she's done in Marine, people are probably sick or would maybe probably be sick of Daenerys fighting more. But in the books, there's so much more to go. There's there's two that have yet to been released. All of these conflicts, whether it's what she does in Essos or if she if 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 she completely ignores young Griff altogether and he's doing something else with his people and Daenerys does something else, it's still potentially two different Targaryens doing things at the same time or against each other in Westeros while the White Walkers are attacking while you're on Greyjoy is sieging Old Town and everything else that he's up to, you know, like while all these things are happening, we've got Stannis in the north, Cersei running amok in King's Landing. We're in the Tyrion chapter, snaking along a river of a once cityed place that was destroyed by conflicts just like this. Exactly. Yeah, I think that brings up a good point. Exactly the question that you asked at the beginning of that was, does it matter if he is who he says he is? I think that all that matters at the end of the day, people believe that he is who he says he is because it continues to fuel this ramp up to the greater conflict of what's about to happen. And that just continues to create more contention and division among an already divided world. We're forcing her into another encounter where she's maybe going to be set upon by forces and maybe she'll have to act with violence or will she respond well and potentially partner with someone that seeks to claim the same throne that she seeks to claim, you know? It's 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 two big options there, but it's going to be a wonderful moment of growth for Daenerys to see that happen and to know what she decides. And in true Targaryen form, they could just marry each other. They could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they could. What a nice practice ground for Daenerys to do it now with Jon Khan and Aegon, because she potentially might have to make that same decision when she meets Jon Snow. Yeah. Like I said, everyone's a secret Targaryen. And that's the other thing. I mean, if, if that's one reason by itself to not believe that Aegon is a true Targaryen, it's that you already got another one floating <laughs> around out there that's pretty influential. Well, this chapter was awesome. Yeah, see, this why this is one of the best chapters. It was And a song of ice and fire. You know what I kept thinking about? You know, in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, when you're going really slowly at the beginning through all the mist and fog. (laughs) I don't know why that's all I could think of. (laughs) That's cool. It felt very much like a 
a tight TV scene almost. I could see them standing at different parts of the ship, tending the fire. And when the Kingfisher came and they shouted from ship to ship, and they were just like, hey, who are you? And they say what they're carrying and they say where they're headed. And that foreboding message from, I guess, the sailors as they were crossing, what were to Volantis? And they're just like, war. I was like, damn. Constantly teasing out things in the greater world that are happening that we obviously need need to think about. And uh, it just was a very subtle reminder to the to the scope of everything while we were so centered in on something that was so intimate. I could almost hear music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really good. And also, just as a backdrop to this, you have detailed description of the Stone Men and of Grayscale, which we know has at least impacted one character that we've come into contact with so far in Shireen Baratheon. Yeah. But now, given few characters on this ship have fought with the stone men and that Tyrion is basically being pulled underwater by one of the stone men. What does that mean for the future of these characters and their potential to contract this? I really don't know. It was a bold move though. And to leave it like that. <laughs> I just keep thinking about everybody also has grayscale. Everyone's a Targaryen <laughs> and everyone has grayscale. <laughs> which is kind of a cop out but I can't stop thinking about Jorah in the last season when he looks at his arm that scene he like looks down on his arm and he's got like all the grayscale all over his arm um, and how he kind of made fun of that scene for a while he checks it for us just in case we forgot (laughs) just in case he forgot but yeah I think there's there's not a lot that we know about how this whole thing works I mean there's these questions brought up in this chapter about how it can spread to your whole body and what that actually means. And we see, you know, lots of different forms and phases of it. And so, I don't know. I don't know if it's something that he could have. I don't know if we know enough about it. Well, there's three ways you can cure it. (laughs) An axe, a sword, and a cleaver. Not even though, you know, what does he say about how some people chop off one of their limbs only to find that it's already spread? How about getting attacked by stonemen, though? If it wasn't foreboding enough, we're worried that they might be there. At one point, he just looks up and it's like, there were the stone men on the bridge shuffling around. And I was like, oh, my God, this is this is frightening. This he just there they are. They're probably going to jump down the ship. They didn't. I thought they were safe. And then they're back there. It's like a bad. It's Mm -hmm. like a nightmare. That was my question, though, is is do you get a free pass the first time around? But if you come back through, you're not as fortunate how does that i mean this whole the whole chapter reminded me very much of the underworld it had a, a very hades type of feel to it river sticks yeah mm-hmm. at least this part of it yeah the men of Atlantis and valeria hung garen in a golden cage and made mock as he called upon his mother to destroy them but in the night the waters rose and drowned them and from that day to this they have not rested they are down there still beneath the water they who were once the lords of fire their cold breath rises from the murk to make these fogs and their flesh has turned as stony as their hearts damn that's so good that's why it takes them so long to write well, it's good. You know, it's good. <laughs> yeah. I read other books too, guys. And when I read other books, they're great. And then I, I, I come on to the show. Good Lord. You know, this book series is going to be crazy when it finishes because we're only on books four and five and we're fighting stone men for God's sakes. It's true. Well, and it's the series that keeps on giving. 
I think that we'll be able to read this for a long time and still enjoy this chapter. So where do things stand with Tyrion and his company moving forward? I know that we've touched on it, but I just want to say that he's in the water. They're fighting people on the deck. Okay. What's next? What's next is you flip however many chapters forward, read the first couple <laughs> sentences to make sure, and then you go back to the <laughs> the, the real chronological order. <laughs> so This was a cruel move, George R. R. Martin. Maybe he'll survive, but now you have everyone worried if he's going to protract grayscale. And he swallowed a ton of that river water. So Yeah. And we wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by the new enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones books available exclusively on iBooks, including the just released A Storm of Swords Enhanced Edition. It contains interactive character maps, hundreds of author notes, beautiful illustrations, a sigil guide, and much more. All these extras bring this thrilling adventure to life and help you stay on top of the epic storylines. I need these digital copies immediately. And whether you're fluent in Dothraki or a reader who's digging into the series for the first time, these enhanced editions are the best way to experience this unforgettable series. You can get the whole series, including a Storm of Swords enhanced edition exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash Game of Thrones. Not available in all countries. Speaking of people with... <laughs> Grayscale. Grayscale. Not all of their limbs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jamie's chapter. Nothing fancy here. I'm just going to read the first uh, bit of it because... It's pretty good. Lord Tywin Lannister had entered the city on a stallion, his enameled crimson armor polished and gleaming, bright white gems and gold work. He left in a tall wagon draped with crimson banners with six silent sisters riding attendants on his bones. Yeah. Do you want to read the next part? The funeral procession departed King's Landing through the Gate of the Gods, wider and more splendid than the Lion Gate. The choice felt wrong to Jamie. His father had been a lion. That no one could deny. But even Lord Tywin never claimed to be a god. I really love that line a lot. Because I think that as we're talking about this last chapter and how much Tyrion's decision to kill his father has changed everything about everybody's trajectory in this series, it's kind of hard to forget that Tywin was a man and not this guy who... You know what I'm saying? Like he, he He's not this omnipresent figure because I think that even though it hasn't been that long since he died, he's already been, especially through this reading order, pushed into this not human type of omnipresent character. And here he is being rolled through the city. Dead. Just like anybody else. Just like anybody else. An honor guard of 50 knights surrounding Lord Tywin's wagon. Well, maybe not like everybody else, but <laughs> the gallantry, the pageantry, the lords following them. And there's a, a pretty bitter exchange between Jamie and his uncle on the way out. I could even see a few of uh, Kevin's lines getting some listener owns, to be honest with you, uh, because he is not kind, to say the least, uh, towards Jamie or even more so uh, towards Cersei. And it's clear that there's a division uh, that has been created. How big that fracture is going to be may take some time to play itself out, but Kevin really doesn't want to have much to do with his niece or his nephew right now. Can you really blame him, though? It's hard to blame him, but I know it was difficult for me to experience it because we know that Jamie has been making strides for a long time to be a better person. And we also know more about him. So as a reader, I'm sure you guys probably felt the same way. It was just tough knowing that, you know, 
he doesn't have the courage to be straight up with Kevin. He's still got a sharp tongue and that does him no favors in the regards of Kevin who like doesn't know how good he is. Right. And, and I thought it was a little bit comical too when they're uh, talking about uh, valiant knights and, and men of the King's Guard and, and he says, once that went without saying when men spoke of those who wore the white cloak uh, that they were good and valiant knights. And then Jamie just kind of like runs through the progression in his mind about uh, what people say about him, right? Kingslayer, man with shit for honor, blah, 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 blah. He's like, I've heard this before, but I shouldn't be hearing it from my own family. And he wants to make the Kingsguard great again, for lack of a better phrase. That's his. <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. It was in there. That's what he wants to do, you know? So it's just, yeah. it's just more hurtful. I understand, Kevin. And to be honest, it's hard to say who started it because Kevin was was sarcastic toward him from the beginning, but Jamie didn't help. That's old school Jamie that used to get himself into trouble on a pretty consistent basis. But yeah, what you said about he wants to make the Kingsguard this honorable faction. Again, I think that ties in very well with the end of this chapter where he's going through the white book and he has a conversation with Loris Terrell and he's mentioning all of these past members of the Kingsguard, some more notable than others, but yet their names were all inscribed, right? So there's just a parallel of sorts between these, this conversation that he's having with his uncle and, and the end part of the chapter. Did you guys really like that scene as much as I did? With Loris and Jamie? Yeah. Well, Loris, I think we've said this before, right? And, and even Jamie makes note of it, that Loris is kind of a younger version of Jamie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's it that he says? I can't remember. I need to flip to it. When they first meet each other, I think that that's exactly what you're saying, Micah. That, and we've said is that Loris is, is a younger version of of Jamie, and that Jamie is just a little bit more grown up. I think at this point, Jamie says to him, "I saw you in the yard today. You rode well." And Loris is like, "Better than well, surely." And Jamie goes, "A modest man might have answered, my lord is too kind,' or I had a good mount.'" And then Laura says, the horse was adequate and my Lord is as kind as I am modest. Yeah. Ouch. Blah, blah, blah. So I think that, <laughs> I think that in comparison to the type of stuff that Jamie's saying to Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely can see the parallels between them. I wish Kevin were here to see that Jamie is on the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, first off, that would be cool <laughs> before the knives, hopefully. It looks like he's he's for real trying to inst- bestow a bit of, of wisdom in regard to the white book. And he probably understands Loris's point of view because yeah, that's probably what he thought about it, too. But they go through this back and forth of naming uh, different knights of the Kingsguard. And Loris has something to say poorly about many of them, which is neat for Loris because Jamie at first, I think, was sort of challenging his knowledge on the book itself. Mm-hmm. And then he had. Not only the knowledge, but he had things to say uh, in retort to sort of smear their honor. And then uh, Jamie gets further down the list and he starts to stump Loris. And then, uh, you know, there's the mention of, of Kristen Cole. But I just thought it was it was really well done, that that back and forth with Loris Tyrell and Jamie. I wish it would have been adapted. It was it was so interesting. And uh, I think one of the better written blocks of dialogue with, with characters that I've read George R. R. Martin do, period. It's just cool to see Jamie Lannister and Loris Tyrell in their common room talking about something other than his sister talking about something other than the plights of the seven kingdoms and fighting, but just a moment of almost peace in the story. Yeah, I agree. I I liked it a lot too. I like, you know, when Laura says something 
Jamie's talking about this, the the white book, and Laura says something along the lines of, I've looked at it, the shields are pretty, like I, I've flipped through it before, it looks cool. But I think that, like you were saying about Kevin hearing Jamie having these conversations, I also think that it would be helpful for him to hear the conversations he has with Cersei beforehand as well. So we're seeing Jamie at the beginning of the chapter, like we're saying, kind of reverting to his old ways. And then we see in the last couple interactions he has with Cersei and with Loras, how far he's come. And you just kind of wanted to put on that face all the time and kind of keep it together like that all the time. Because I think he makes a lot of great points to both of them about their roles and what's best for the kingdom. You wish that everybody could could be present and aware and watching this unfold like we are. And you wish that Jamie knew that Tyrion wasn't lying about, well, maybe Moon Boy, but still. Moon Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Unless that's her nickname for somebody else. Yeah. Lancel. It could be, but that the funny thing too is when he's having the conversation with Lancel, he thinks there's absolutely no, no way. way that Cersei would ever go there. <laughs> but in fact, that one is definitely a check on the list of uh, incest. Man, that Lancel conversation, Jamie was roasting Lancel Lannister. It was so funny. It was really, really funny. Do you think that's because <laughs> of the conversation he just had with Kevin? Do you think that added to it? Jamie wants Kevin to stay. He understands that family against family isn't good, but also uh, losing someone like Kevin who could potentially help keep Cersei in the green is something that he wants to not see happen. So knowing that he's going to Derry and that Kevin's basically just wiped his hands with this whole situation and just been like, listen, I'm done. Kevin said, what did he say? Like when he was, when he was telling Jamie bye, he was, he was make sure to tell her that the next time you're in her bedchamber, I was like, damn. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah, mic drop moment for uh, for Uncle Kevin. And it's his uncle, for God's sake. <laughs> it's also interesting in this chapter, though, to see how Cersei is being strategic. And I think even Jamie raises this when he starts to talk about those that have become a part of her inner circle. And, you know, Kevin going off to Derry, as you mentioned, but you also have the Tyrells, which have, for the most part, headed back to Highgarden. Mace is headed off to Storm's End. You have Paxter Redwin, you know, going to investigate Dragonstone now that Stannis supposedly has left a very small contingent of his men back there. And she's slowly creating this really odd grouping of people like the Kettle Blacks, the latest, and um, I'm probably not pronouncing your name right, but um, is it Tana? Tana, Tina. Meriwether. Right. One of Marjorie Terrell's good friends, an informant of sorts for both sides. I just think that this whole chapter, what I walked away with is that but she, she's continuing to think that she's smarter than she actually is. And Jamie alludes to that. And I think a lot about something Tyrion says basically that in the show, I think at a different point. But Cersei has the wit. I think what is I can't remember exactly what the quote is, but that that Cersei has has the the wit, but she doesn't she's too impatient and that she's too much like wildfire and that she kind of builds these people around her who she thinks are helping her when in reality she's turning people who should be her friends into her enemies. And just in general, she's picking that she's not doing it good enough. Yeah, she's just she's not doing it well enough. And Jamie says at one point, listen to yourself. Kevin isn't your enemy. I'm not your enemy. You're kind of pushing these people away who are your family and who should be in your inner circle. And instead, you're putting 
other people here who are just telling you what you want to hear. And so I think that Jamie, who is more biased towards Cersei than anyone, I would say almost in the world, starting to pick up on these, starting to compare her to the Mad King, I think that it doesn't bode well for the trajectory that she's on because if he's having those thoughts, then everybody else in the world is going to be. Who better to tell us about Cersei appearing to be bad than the person we Jamie. we know that cares about her so much and also the person who can directly reference um, many things about the Mad King. And he, you know, he, he saw break down into chaos from a violent, uh, sadistic perspective, and he saw it up close. And so he also mm-hmm. conversely knows Cersei her entire life. It's his twin sister. And uh, yeah, so it's it's really powerful. And he coming loves her. Time. And he loves her. So that's why it's so tough. And their father's just because you can see you can see so many moments through this chapter when Jamie kind of goes off thinking about how beautiful she looked in these specific moments and how much he loves her. And then at the same time, saying in the same sentence, essentially, that she doesn't know what she's doing. She's kind of crazy. You know, who knows what she could do next? She reminds me of, of Mad King. Mm-hmm. And poor Jamie, he just fails at every turn. It starts with the Kev- Kevin Lannister conversation. It goes to the Cersei conversation and it kind of ends with the Loras conversation. You know, he tries to shine through in certain moments and no matter what he tries, all these people are just com- being complete and utter dicks to him. Um, but Hannah, the, the part that you're referring to, I think, I found it um, in the chapter. It says, their father had been as relentless and implacable as a glacier, where Cersei was all wildfire, especially when thwarted. She had been giddy as a maiden when she learned that Stannis had abandoned Dragonstone, certain that he had finally given up the fight and sailed away to exile. When word came down from the north that he had turned up again at the wall, her fury had been fearful to behold. She does not lack for wits, but she has no judgment and no patience. And then it goes into the, which I'm sure we'll talk about now, um, the conversation about hand uh, and that she needs a strong hand to which she replies, a weak ruler needs a strong hand as heiress needed father. A strong ruler requires only a diligent servant to carry out his orders. And a candy corner. Which is the, yeah. <laughs> and, <that too. laughs> and a side hustle. <laughs> but that completely, that line completely says everything we need to know about Cersei's current state of mind, which is that she, she thinks that she, she doesn't want any opposition. She doesn't want anybody to tell her that she's wrong. She doesn't want anybody to uh, disagree with what she's saying. She just needs yes men to kind of carry out her wildfire fantasies and how destructive that is. There's going to have to be some sacrifice. She's going to have to invite people like the Tyrells to be her friends. And she consistently refuses to use any of those methods. And it's not a secret. So the story isn't what will Cersei do? The story is let's travel through a Feast for Crows together, readers, and you can watch the systematic breakdown of Cersei Lannister into a tyrant. Yeah. It's like she wasn't even paying attention to the way Tywin ran things because she compares herself so much to him, but completely doesn't do anything that he did. She's pushing away all these alliances that he worked so hard to carefully pull together. She's the king, essentially. I mean, she's not just the queen regent. She's the king. Like she's she's in charge. And that's that's exactly where she wants to be. And 
the people that she's assembled are people that she can easily manipulate. And they're not people that are going to speak up against her. And I think that's exactly why, you know, if you have somebody like Kevin Lannister's Hand of the King, he's not going to follow her every suggestion, recommendation. Right. Because that's just not his nature. And so that's why I wonder why Cersei would want to even offer that title to Kevin, knowing that she would be unable to control him or perhaps just the formality of it had to be done. And she knew that it was a position that he would never take because, of course, we know what he wants her to do. He, he doesn't want her to even be in King's Landing. So I just see her now in a position where she's going to try and be this master manipulator. And I think we talked about this at the end of last season um, for the television show. Has she put enough strategic alliances in place to keep her in power over the long term? Because all of those that were around her that would be considered her allies are no longer there. Jamie's not there, at least for the time being. And who knows how this is all going to work itself out. But for the time being right now, yeah, she's in she's in a great spot. But who's even there behind her who has any sort of weight? Or power. You think about, we're talking about the people who are surrounding her, and I keep kind of going back to Taina, however how we're going to pronounce her name, how she can control those situations. Those are the kind of people that are surrounding her, and I can't even think now at this point, anybody who's really going to go to bat for her, who has any sort of power to keep her in power, who's going to be able to keep her there long enough to succeed in any way, shape, or form. And so, I think that like you're saying, Micah, this wraps in nicely with conversations that we were having at the end of last season, which is, and what you were saying earlier, Zach, is like, what is her motive? Like, what next? Yeah. Where do we go from here? Yeah, what's the point? You know, we've got Tommen, who is just interested in kittens um, the in blessed. this chapter. He wants to send Tyrion a kitten. <laughs> and she's not really doing anything constructive. I mean, we, we have the opportunity to get in her headspace a little bit. And so we understand her madness a little bit better but what is the what in her mind is the end game and how is she going to achieve that when she has nobody around her and she's losing even someone like Jamie I think her her drive right now is certainly protecting Tommen as much as she possibly can and I feel like there there's definitely a side of her that wants to rule and and wants to be in control and we shouldn't be dismissive of that but I think given what's happened to Joffrey she she knows the prophecy that's been made. She wants to do everything she can to protect Tom, and she feels like the best way that she can do that is by essentially ruling for him. Clearing house of anybody who might... Well, yes, especially since we learned that the Queen of Thorns keeps a chest of coins in her wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. That was just, just casually thrown in there with no real further discussion on the topic. I feel that Tywin's funeral finally being over now marks marks a phase of the post-Taiwan world finally coming to an end in the diplomacies that followed Taiwan dying. It felt very much like we were still shuffling around and trying to put pieces together in the right place. And we were still sort of doing that in this chapter, but not as much so because Kevin from the top put out that he was not going to be uh, becoming Hand of the King. So I feel like when he's gone and when they're no longer putting Taiwan's body to rest and the nobles separate and everyone goes their which ways and the kingdom starts needing to be actually ran again, that we're going to be 
you know, in the next phase of, of the, uh, whatever you want to call Cersei's doing. And, uh, I think that by the time the next Cersei chapters come around, comes around, she's, she's going to realize that there's a lot of, of work that she has to do and she has to get started now. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, exactly like you're saying, Cersei has her work cut out for her. And I think that we're going to see in her next couple of chapters and, and in the next season or whatever, what that actually ends up looking like. And if she's able to be successful, which I think the answer is probably no. And I already quoted this a little bit earlier, but I think it's worth mentioning again when Jamie says to Cersei, he says, listen to yourself. You're seeing dwarfs in every shadow and making foes of friends. Uncle Kevin is not your enemy. I am not your enemy. And I think that that line to Cersei is so important. I think that we're talking about Tywin finally dying and and his funeral being over and he's out of the picture and Cersei's still holding on to all of these old feelings about her family and she needs to let that go and not make enemies of the family that is living in with her there now. Own to Jamie for understanding that and for being able to say that to her whether even if she's not going to be listening. I'll actually uh add to your own Hannah because mine is just the line right before it, sort of the internal monologue that Jamie's having when he says the crows will feast upon us all if you go on this way, sweet sister. Yeah. It's good. Book drop. Zach, do you want your own to be the line after? Yeah, no. I don't know what it I don't know what it is. <laughs> I wanted to give my own to the the concept of, of Marjorie and Cersei. Marjorie was like, Of course you should have her. How they're just sort of trading, you know, their female companions as, you know, they're just playing the Game of Thrones with their bot friends. I was just like, That's just that's well, so wild to me. Uh, that idea, but I'm gonna give my own to Braun of the fucking Blackwater for naming his baby Tyrion Lannister. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I like that. I love that so much. When he did that, when Benioff and Weiss read that, they were like, "Braun's got to be so cool in the show." You don't get John Connington, but you get more Braun. So, <laughs> what else can we do for you? I really like that, and I like how much it annoys them. So bad. How much it annoys Cersei. The Tyrion chapter is way harder to own because I want to give it to the whole chapter. If that's what you want to do. You can. Can I? Why not? Okay. You do whatever you I want. want to give rules, my, Hannah. Yeah. You make <laughs> the rules. rules. <laughs> I make the rules. This is my my world, my show. Um, okay, so I'm just going to give my own to the whole entire chapter because like I said at the beginning of the episode, this is one of my favorite chapters in this entire series. And I think that it just embodies everything that's great about this book that we're reading. It is the... So I'm not even going to go into detail. We just talked about it for an hour i really love this chapter and my own goes to the whole thing boom damn how do we top that i don't know i don't know you can give your own to the book as a whole <laughs> i don't know i don't think i'll go that i'm far. gonna give my own to hannah for being brave enough to give her own to an entire chapter and also to michael I, for encouraging her to do it right <laughs> i have a i do have an honorary own first uh, because i wanted to bring it up when we were uh, doing the chapter discussion, but I feel like we probably spent most of the uh, episode talking about the Tyrion chapter. Can you blame so, us? No, because it's your favorite chapter ever. But the potential uh, dragon spotting by Tyrion, yeah, I thought was really kind of quick and not as um, evident as it was in the show. So uh, I really do like that. But also, um, I'm going to have to give my own officially to... Uh, it's just following the uh, the Garen story. It follows the line where 
I think it's Yandri who's speaking. Some say that he himself is Garen risen from his watery grave talking about the Shrouded Lord. And then Halden Halfmaester says something that in Game of Thrones, no person, no character should ever say, which is the dead do not rise. Yeah. And no man lives a thousand years. And I just thought that that was completely ironic and odd that um, that would be thrown in to this particular chapter because we know that's not true. Yeah. No, that's a hundred percent false. <laughs> yeah. I'm giving my own to Tyrion for, well, and, and the situation for things to get dire enough. You know, we talked about how it felt storybook and we could see the scene in our mind. And at this point they are on alert because they're about to be attacked by the stone men right above them. And their, their backs are back to back. They're holding torches. They've got their blades. Their steel is showing. It is time. And that's the moment that George gives to Tyrion the bravery to call young Griff out for who he is right there. I just thought the way that it happened was perfect because I don't know if it would have ever come out uh, or at least not like this, you know, not this early. I think it was it was way early for us to even expect. We're only a few chapters in with them. I think only like two chapters we've had spending time with them. This almost being the second, I could be wrong. And the mystery of this child is not only settled, but not only like settled with him and us reading in his mind, but he says it out loud to them. He calls, he calls them out all of it. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a really cool scenario. That's what my own is. I like it. Love it. Let's get to uh, some listener owns. Let's do it. The first uh, comes from Jerry in Laos, who says, I just like the Twitter handle better, at Unlaos. <laughs> great. Yep. Own for the Jamie chapter goes to Tyrion. He got well and truly into Jamie's head when he told him earlier who Cersei was sleeping with. And own for the Tyrion chapter goes to the Roin for giving the crew of the Shy Maid a false sense of security Too bad. before dicking them over. Too true. Next on Twitter, we have Momo, who says, own to Loras for knowing how to do his duty in the marriage bed. His wife's a lucky lady. <laughs> and then second, own to the stone men for being tough as nails and fighting through broken limbs and bleeding joints. That's a fair own to the stone men. Brienne of Tarth writes into us, both owns to Tyrion, one for hanging around Griff et al., just long enough to introduce a new plot point. And also the other for supposedly hiding in Lawless Stokeworth this whole time. Heathen King says, I'd like to note that both of these chapters are so much about greatness fading into dust. From the city of Croyane to the bones of Tywin Lannister, fortune ebbs and flows as do love and dreams and eventually <laughs> fades to nothing. God. Enjoy <laughs> <laughs> let's just quit podcasting whoa heathen king goes on uh quite a bit he says hashtag make the king's guard great again assuming that's uh in reference to jamie's chapter and quote give me leave to pick my own men and i'll make the king's guard great again own to quote put that badly though it sounded feeble and own to the existential void that swallows Tyrion at the end of the chapter, quote, no man would mourn the thing yeah. he'd become. That's a good line. I feel like we didn't talk about it enough, even though we talked about it. Our last for Twitter, we have Julie Harris Green, or at Inky Pages, who said, Loras owns Jamie. Well, and he says, my lord is as kind as I am modest. And then next, Tyrion Smartmouth owns them all, stirring up all sorts of trouble and sorrow. On Facebook, Emmy Filio 
She writes, my own for Tyrion 5 has to go to Illyrio and Varys for having the foresight to not rest all their hopes in Danny, but to have a plan B in young Griff slash Aegon Targaryen. Or is Aegon their plan A? Either way, Illyrio and Varys are playing to win. My own for Jamie 2 goes to Kevin. I love that good old Uncle Kevin completely ran out of fucks to give and now says whatever he wants. Such an underrated character. Also, I just wanted to say thank you so much for this podcast. I look forward to each new episode and love hearing your thoughts and opinions on the characters and storylines as I read the books for the first time. Wishing you all happy holidays. Thanks, Emily. Thank you, Emily. And we forgot to mention it at the top of the show, but this this is our holiday episode, as it were. Yeah. And um, happy holidays. Happy Surprise. holidays to all of you. <laughs> and uh, final own from Aris Palazzolo, who for Tyrion, their own goes to the three <laughs> cures to grayscale, the axe, the sword, and Not the bad. cleaver. It's a rough life. And for Jamie, I love the conversation between Jamie and Kevin at the start of the Jamie chapter. Owen has to go to Jamie for all the good he is trying to do in this chapter, only to have it be misconstrued the wrong way, such as the warning he gives his uncle, only to have him take leave it Jamie as alone. a threat. Hashtag leave yeah, Jamie really. alone. Man's trying. <laughs> Jamie, I'll still never forgive you for the way you talked to Ned Stark, but it's neither here nor there. Thank you for sitting in your owns, everyone. It's been a lot of fun. This book's good. These books are good. Put them together. It's still pretty good. Feastwithdragons.com. If you book. want to look at our reading order, send in your owns for our next pair of chapters. Which include uh, Cersei. Oh. What a surprise. Well, and the and Iron Captain. The Iron <laughs> Captain. Hell. I wonder who that is. Send in your owns, please. Yep. And you can do so uh, a number of ways, many of which you just heard. Uh, you can tweet at us at Game of Owns, scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns, or. You can send us an email. We still get that. Contact at GameOfOwns.com. And before we go... The enhanced editions of George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones books are available exclusively on iBooks, including the just-released A Storm of Swords Enhanced Edition. It contains interactive character maps, hundreds of author notes, beautiful illustrations, a sigil guide, and much more. All these extras bring this thrilling adventure to life and help you stay on top of the epic storylines. Get A Storm of Swords Enhanced Edition exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash Game of Thrones. Not available in all countries. If you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash goo where we've got extra content and extra podcasts where we say very nice things about how much we love each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, if you support the show, Hannah will inscribe your name into her high school desk, which she still uses to this day. Mm-hmm. Everything in a squad of ice and fire is 100% true. And you can check that out at patreon.com slash goo. It's a, it's a real mystery. You talk about Con of it's Thrones, a real right? Mystery. Oh, yeah. Um, you guys know about it if you listen to our show. It's a convention I've been planning for a really long time with some of my friends. And we're really excited to do it. And last week, we announced our first two guests. Big announcements. Last week, we welcomed Carrie Ingram, new Princess Shireen Baratheon, to Count of Thrones. Speaking of grayscale. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Ewan Rian, your Lord Ramsay Bolton. I don't think you could have announced two characters at more different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, that's what I was going I for. <laughs> Honestly, I'm thinking of Sandor Clegane and Septa. What's her name? Mordain. And Septa Mordain next week. That joke totally so fell flat. Too. 
<laughs> I promise the con's going to be better than my jokes. Um, please go to conofthrones.com if you're interested in joining us in Nashville. I would talk about it more, but we've gone long and we have all year to discuss it. So make your plans now because... We're going to continue to announce guests and you want to make sure you got your ticket. Also, don't forget to rate and review our show on iTunes, please. Yep. It's the holidays. What he said. Give. Well, it is the month of December and in this month, nothing less than five stars is acceptable when you rate and review the show over on iTunes and there's just additional incentive. It's the holiday season. So, you know, as we head towards the end of the year and into the new year, we will uh, check out the... Uh, the reviews and maybe read a few of them on the show. And I would just say though, that given the fact that we are heading into the new year, I'm sure there'll be a lot of buzz starting to, uh, I should actually say continuing, um, to grow around game of Thrones, particularly the show, but also with this convention and, and with, um, maybe the winds of winter, not that far off, we can cross our fingers and Please cross for a long time. But, uh, <laughs> It's good for other people to learn about uh, the show, that we exist, and one of the ways that you can help us out with that is by uh, rating and reviewing the show over on iTunes. We haven't mentioned so far in this episode that our other series uh, is now two episodes in. We've done the pilot and we have done the King's Road episode so far in Rewatch the Throne with our friend Evan, and it has been a complete thrill ride i'm talking i'm talking about watching the show with someone who has never seen game of thrones before try to talk about brand falling out of a window it's just been a lot of fun and we learned that uh, the word for brand actually falling out of the window or being thrown out of the window is uh, defenestration and that that's something that micah just knows I mean, that's the kind of stuff he just knows about <laughs> <laughs> so please if you're interested go to rewatchthethrone.com to listen to rewatch the throne our new series on hal.fm Sweet. I think that's it. Cersei, the Iron Captain, they're up next. A little light reading while you're uh, traveling home for the holidays. Habits of eggnog with <laughs> yeah. rum. In front of the fireplace. Thank you so much for an amazing 2016. It has been an absolute blast. We're so grateful for you listening to our podcast and uh, sharing this journey through the series with us. 